welcome everybody to the latest installment of the Energy Aspects long-term podcast series. My name is Liz Russell. I'm the head of sales for the Americas here at Energy Aspects, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Trevor Sikorsky for a conversation about carbon. Um, I like to call it, let's clear the air. How are you today, Trevor? Uh, great. Thanks, Liz. Um, looking forward to our conversation. Hi. Um, we're about to publish the long-term forecast, and obviously decarbonization is a primary driver across all the markets. So here's what the way I think about it, Trevor, and, and help me think about it the right way. There's a tremendous amount of headlines around certainly short-term market action, but also around the long-term outlook for emissions and uh, net zero goals. And that's coming out of the majors. It's coming out of industries. It's coming out of states here in America. How do you think about this market? How should people, should we be focused on the short term, the long term? How are they going to come together? Well, thanks, Liz. That's a really big question, I think. And we can we can kind of, I think, take it in different different layers, if you'd like. And certainly, you know, there is carbon pricing in parts of the world. And, you know, the biggest one, of course, the EU ETS, but you also have, you know, the northeastern states with Reggie and you've got California. Uh, you've got carbon pricing kind of starting in China. You've got Korea. You've got it. You've got it around the world, but they're all very regional. They don't really talk to each other, so they're not fungible between each other. But that, you know, with time, you would think it can change. So there are short-term dynamics, and the short-term dynamics in each of those markets, which are which are which are important, and we'll be providing signals on, you know, for instance, how to use your your power plants, what power plants should you burn at the moment. Um, but those are important as well because they they do represent one of the key regulatory levers for actually driving decarbonization. And it's those longer term, you know, expectations of price signals, which are going to be really important in driving these shorter term markets. Now, of course, a lot of decarbonization and a lot of that effort will be done outside of, let's say, emissions pricing, even though, you know, there, there's a good argument to say, you know, just have emissions pricing and you don't need a lot of other things. But there is going to be a lot of other supportive policies. So when you look at, let's say, the Biden administration's, uh, you know, kind of very green policy agenda, a lot of that's going to be done through, through you know, other forms of regulation rather than carbon pricing. Um, uh, so, so I think, you know, these are important, but with time, you'd hope that there's, you know, the amount of uh, the amount of, uh, let's say, commodities or the amount of regions with carbon pricing in the world will begin to increase. And, and you know, that kind of spread of carbon pricing, even in Europe where you have the ETS, you know, there's lots of talks as part of the Green Deal about kind of widening the coverage of the EU ETS. At the moment, it's industry and power, but, you know, sectors they've talked about, you know, we include uh, shipping, it includes home heating, it includes road transport. So all of those things could go in and really deepen the the amount of sectors subject to carbon pricing. So I think that's really important. And then you have this really important thing, uh, which is all of the ESG type of behavior that you see coming from the majors, from other industries, from airlines, you know, from, from the tech guys, from almost everyone, you know, saying we're going to be net zero carbon at some point in the future. And some of that will 
be done, I think, through the carbon markets. And some of that will just be done through, you know, individual, let's say, uh, uh, trying to reduce emissions along the value chain of whatever they're involved in for the oil and gas guys. That's, of course, dealing with a lot of upstream and midstream emissions and trying to get those down. In terms of the carbon markets, though, what that kind of means is you do have uh, another type of carbon market, which is in cap and trade. So, so, so far, when we talk about EU ETS, Regi, et cetera, these are just standard cap and trade. A regulator sets a cap, and then people trade around that and reduce emissions with that reducing uh, cap. Now, of course, for, for ESG, that's mostly kind of self-voluntary, if you'd like. It's, you know, it's not really being regulated by anyone apart from shareholders. And 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 so these we could rely, though, a lot on carbon offsets, so a, a kind of different carbon commodity. And we think that probably carbon offsetting is going to grow in importance as you get more and more companies kind of getting involved with offsets. So one example, of course, just being Shell recently in their recent earnings calls, setting out a very aggressive kind of, you know, net zero carbon path, but doing that with a big reliance on its own kind of offsets, so forestry and types of projects like that. And all of those are going to give rise to price signals and be important. So offsets, offsets don't necessarily reduce carbon, if I understand this correctly. They sort of move it around in such a way. Is this true or is this um, a dirty rumor? <laughs> <laughs> I think offset providers would 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 take a would have some form of disagreement with that, Liz. But I mean, I think there is always this you know there is always this risk of perception with offsets that you know at best you're paying somebody else to do something that you yourself should be doing, and then this kind of does follow the offset uh, around. But a real key point of offset regulation is in the way offset works. Uh, you know, offsets work is very much uh, you set a baseline and say, if I don't do anything, then emissions will be X, let's say 10. If I do make this investment in this project, then emissions are going to be lower by, you know, by five, let's say. So I should be credited for five units of emissions. And that's effectively you know, the, the the real basis of how offsets work. And so what becomes really important is how you establish that off that base and make sure that the investment actually would be additional. And, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, years and years of experience kind of trying to get methodologies agreed to, to deal with those two things, the, you know, the setting of the baseline and the requirement for additionality, as it's called. And both of those very complex. So it is with, you know, with offsets, you need to really be certain about what you're buying to make sure they're additional, uh, to make sure the baseline's been set in the right way. Because otherwise, those kind of, you know, uh, criticisms that you're not really actually doing something or you're just paying someone else to do something, you know, comes kind of back to haunt you. And that's not what you want if you're doing it for ESG, because ESG is all about reputation. It's about doing the right thing as a corporate body. And certainly you don't want to be buying, you know, the, the equivalent of a junk bond. Right, right. So again, thinking about this from a long-term perspective, what are the major themes that you focused on in the analysis and publication of energy aspects, you know, long-term? decarbonization view out to 
2030? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at 2030, it's 2030 goals, which are really important. So, you know, you are looking at not so much those long-term goals. Yes, the long-term goals of 2050, you know, uh, carbon neutrality are important. But what's really important is what's going to happen, you know, for the markets is what's going to happen, let's say, out to 2030, because to get to 2030 goals, you really have to be more or less starting today, now to do things. So a lot of scrutiny on, you know, the 2030, those interim targets being really important. So in the, you know, if you look at the EU, for instance, EU targets uh, were for a 40% reduction uh, on 1990 levels by by 2030. And as part of the Green Deal, which is, you know, which has come around over the last year or so, um, you know, there was a massive upping in uh in ambition. And that is going from a, you know, what was a legislative 40% reduction to now a 55% reduction on emissions by 2030. To put that into context, the last tar- long-term target they had, which they agreed in 2008 for 2020 was a 20% reduction, you know, in targets. So in that 10 year, you know, you had 12 years to get, uh, you know, uh, to take 20% off. And now you're looking uh, to take another 35% off. So now I've only done the easiest stuff, you're going to more than double that and, and try to do. So this is really, you know, ambitious and it's fundamental. And the key thing to look at when you're looking at the impact on energy markets is, of course, you know, what technologies are out there? What can you do? How are you going to do this? And of course, electrification of a lot of sectors is important. So road transport, electrification of that, some industrial process, some industrial heating, electrification of that, uh, home heating, potentially, some electrification of that. So, you you know, you are stacking up a lot of things to go into power. And at the same time, you're trying, of course, to decarbonize power, so a lot on renewables and the instability that might bring to grids. So then you're talking a lot about other technologies like batteries, maybe even hydrogen, of course, hydrogen uh, being another technological solution. Um, and when you're looking at all of those, it's, you know, you say, well, this is really expensive. So how do you get there? And what's going to be your major policy? And yes, there's going to be direct policies, there's going to be subsidization of new, uh, you know, new technologies, there's, there's going to be tax rebating, there's going to be all those kinds of things. But there also probably, you know, will there will be carbon prices, and carbon prices will have to be very, very high, we think, to accomplish all of the goals that you know decarbonization is setting out for 2030 and that's really you know that real upping of ambition happened really only i would say over 2019 2020 and there's been a real groundswell of increases in ambition and as such it has kind of held out let's say a golden period at least for you know carbon as commodity in terms of price increases and in terms of being you know being high i mean lots of people at the moment are talking about a commodity super cycle but really what you're going to be entering into i think is a carbon super cycle and that's going to be one of the things that really drives uh, things forward over the next bit and of course makes us very bullish on on commodities like the eua you know which is under the eu ets that's really interesting the commodity super cycle being at least driven or one could say sparked by carbon and it takes me back to this issue of price action around eu ets as sort of the benchmark for what might be going on we've seen um possibly irrational price targets coming out of the street 
But we've seen a ton of speculation in EU ETS. We've seen some real volatility in pricing. What happens to this market? Do speculators stay in it because it's the driver? Does it become an asset class? Where do you see the market action moving and stabilizing? Yeah, I mean, you, you you have to be in it to win it, right? And and so, um, so, but it's a really, really, it is a very good question, Liz. I think, and and you know, you are looking at. Um, I think a big question for a lot of people is is you know who are involved in the energy industry. You know, it is very very clear now that you know we are at the beginning of the you know an energy transition, the likes of which you know most of us will have never seen you know never seen in our lifetimes, and you know it is a real big change on how we we traditionally do things. And carbon looks like a very good asset class for being exposed to that in energy transition because there's one thing that of course has to get more scarce as you go through time. Um, and it, you know, and, and and so it should be reflecting all of those kinds of, you know, all of that kind of uh, bullish, you know, bullish sentiment from all of the optimism coming out of the 2030 target. So, um, so when you look now, I mean, certainly, you know, there. I would say there's, some, you know, it's, like you said, I think irrational maybe forecasts coming from uh, some 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 aspects of the street on exactly where these prices can go. But I think generally there is a very a kind of sound analytical consensus that carbon is structurally, you know, a bullish commodity, and it will be so, and that will. Be the thing that at the moment is attracting the speculative, you know, speculative capital into the market. A lot of speculative capital, of course, will be mixed, right? Some will be short-term guys looking, you know, to drive something up, take profit and come out. There will be though some, you know, I think, you know, a growing amount of buy and hold going into the carbon market. So these are, you know, um, you know, people who want to have exposure to the energy transition and are willing to go in, ride out some of the volatility that's endemic in the emissions market and just buy it and hold it going out to the future. So I think there is this new class of, you know, of, of uh, you know, you've always had speculation, but a new class of kind of investors that might get involved in the carbon markets uh, for those reasons, you know, just for like, we need to have some exposure. We need to have, uh, you know, to, to uh, the, the energy, you know, the energy transition, um, you know, and look for, for a commodity they can buy and hold and, and, and carbon, you know, for, for a number of reasons, including, you know, it doesn't cost anything, you know, to physically hold it and keep it, it just costs the value of money, um, makes it a very desirable, you know, longer term thing to hold. You don't need necessarily to lose on the rolls or anything like that. It can be a very kind of easy investment for speculators. Sure. You can also see a world in which um, not just physical market participants in, in that hardcore sense are entering the market, but almost um, as a piece of a portfolio offsetting other investments. I think that there's um, I think that there's a lot of room to run for people to look at this market in very different ways that, than they have in the past. Um, and it is, as we said, the bridge to the future. So my favorite question to ask people, Trevor, when I'm, when I'm having a great conversation is not uh, what keeps you up at night when you think about this market, but what gets you out of bed? What do you think is the single most exciting theme around carbon and emissions trading looking forward? 
<laughs> That's a nice question. I mean, I think the thing that is exciting is is going into you know completely new into completely new paradigms of how to do things and and you know and see these big big changes um and and that kind of change you know as some people you know obviously you know will fear it in some ways but but for me that's a very exciting thing as an analyst because you have a whole bunch of new things to look at and you know for instance you know it's hydrogen could become a very big energy right. commodity right and and you know how do you price hydrogen what's you know what's it going to look like you know when is it going to get to a place where actually it'll be a liquid commodity that people want to you know that people will be needing to to you know, transacting when you have a lot of underlying processes using it. Um, when does it become liquid? You know, what does it, you know, how does it trade? You know, do you end up getting, yeah. you know, all those interesting things that we as analysts like to look at? You know, does it have different, different geographical bases? You know, you know, will it, you know, will it trade on, 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 on grids like gas? You know, what will it look like? How will it behave? And so that kind of thing is obviously just very, I think, intellectually interesting for us as analysts. And I think the other thing is just to see how all of this plays out. Because when you look at it, you'd say, well, there's a huge amount of challenges, right? You're starting almost from scratch, you know, on hydrogen. Yes, there's a, a little bit of hydrogen mm -hmm. around, but it is, it's, it's really starting at the beginning. You know, how do you, how do you scale that up? How do you, how do you manage grids when, you know, when almost all of it is renewable, how do you price power when you don't right. really have any short-term marginal costs, right? Uh, how do you do all this stuff? And so lots of stuff for us to think about, really interesting stuff. And that's uh, that for me, that's the kind of exciting stuff uh, all about the energy transition. I think we're getting uh, to the end of our conversation. I could talk to you all day and I'm sure people would listen to it, but Thank you for enlightening me and everybody who listens to this podcast. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Trevor. Thank you very much, Liz. 